Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water, whose fruit never, whose leaves never wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. That brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf never withers, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up as a substitute for us all, how shall he not with him also graciously give us all things? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. This morning, as we prepare to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, we have a few seconds for spiritual preparation. And as last week, I think we have someone joining us on the phone. So hello to Theron Houston, who I think is in Houston. And uh, very pleased to have him listening in this morning. But we have the opportunity for spiritual preparation. Spiritual preparation includes confession of sins. And we have that wonderful privilege, wonderful opportunity, because of our risen Savior. So this morning, let's take just a few seconds. I think all those here this morning are fully aware of how we confess our sins by closing our eyes and bowing our heads. It gives us privacy. And it also gives us an opportunity, therefore, to have a conversation with the Father. We simply need to acknowledge our sins. And at that moment, then we are once more walking with the Spirit, filled with God the Holy Spirit. And we have the opportunity to learn spiritual information. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we serve a risen Savior. We're thankful on this day we have the opportunity to remember the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, not only on the cross, but in his resurrection. We're thankful, Father, that while other religions have human prophets or human heroes, they are all in the grave. The tomb is empty. And we are thankful that we have a Savior who not only came in human form in his hypostatic union, deity and humanity, but that he now in resurrection body is our intercessor and our high priest at your right hand. Help us this morning as we study these passages of Scripture about the resurrection that we may understand truly the significance of what you have provided in your plan for us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> this week, I thought that what I would like to do this morning is try to maintain some of our momentum in Philippians 4, and then maybe in the second service, look more closely at the day that we are celebrating. And last night as I was studying the resurrection, going through the passages of Scripture, I realized that we probably could take a week of Sundays and not have enough time to really uh, focus as we should on the resurrection. So this morning, we will have two special services, both of them focused on the resurrection. And the importance of Resurrection Sunday, and I think last year I went into some great detail about his death, burial, and resurrection. matter of fact, I believe I addressed it also on the Sunday prior to Resurrection Sunday, Palm Sunday. And I observed uh, on that day and also probably the, the following day that uh, one of the traditions in many churches is to have palms on Palm Sunday. And I, I simply didn't grow up in that tradition. And it's, it's nothing, there's nothing wrong with having palms on Palm Sunday. But it's not a tradition that we have followed. But I want to thank uh, Scott for bringing in uh, a flower this morning. And Lily, that was one of the things I always remember from the churches that uh, where I grew up is we would often have fresh flowers on any Sunday, and then certainly on Resurrection Sunday, there would be lilies. And so, thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> what we are going to do this morning is we are going to look during this first service at the fact of the resurrection of our Lord. Because there are, of course, challenges to his resurrection. And there are many theories and uh, claims that have arisen in the last probably two centuries because for the most part from the date of his resurrection until the 19th century and in somewhat into the 20th century, our Lord Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was an established and accepted fact. But it wasn't until we became too wise, you know, wise in our own ways, that his resurrection uh, became challenged. And so this morning, I thought what we would do is review our scripture on his resurrection. And then in the second service, we'll look at the significance of the resurrection. And there are many, many passages to cover, not only in the Gospels, but Paul and Peter address them as well, but we are somewhat limited by time. This morning, to begin, let's open our, our, uh, our Bibles to Matthew <clears throat> chapter 28. Well, as a matter of fact, yes, Matthew 28. We'll just start. I've debated whether I wanted to read the different passages in the Gospels, but I think we will. 
It's simply a matter of, as we read, whether we are stalled with questions as we go. We'll try not to let that happen. Matthew 28, 1 tells us that we are on the day after the seventh day of the week. We are on Sunday, which would be the first day of the week. The Sabbath day was their seventh day. And it says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. We'll see who this other Mary is in uh, Mark, but for those who are inquisitive, and then it also says, uh, the other Mary came to see the tomb. Let's just keep your finger there, turn back one page, and if you'll look at verse 55 in Matthew 27, we see, and many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministered to, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. This is at the crucifixion. Among those were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons, and that will be Salome, and we'll see her name somewhere else. So the two Marys we see, one is Mary Magdalene, and the other one is Mary the mother of James and Joseph. So they came to the tomb in verse 2 of chapter 28. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Now that's, if you want to draw attention to any particular item, just either stand in front of it, sit on it, draw on it, do something. But So the angel sits on the stone. So there's no doubt there was a stone. There's no doubt the stone was moved. And now it's just obvious to everybody because if there's one thing you're going to see when you come up to the tomb, it's the angel. A little out of place on earth. His countenance was like, was like, uh, his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead, like dead men. Here we have an adjective, but it's a substantive. It's an acting like a noun. So they became like dead what? Not dead trees, but dead men. So they passed out. You know. They're no longer conscious. They're no longer part. They're no longer playing a part. Verse 5, But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. So the Lord prophesied he predicted that this would occur and we'll see that he did this many times come see the place where the lord lay verse 7 and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and indeed he is going before you into galilee there you will see him behold i have told you so they went out quickly from the tomb which by the way was empty and they went with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. Let's turn now to Mark 16. Mark 16, 1 is our next passage. Mark 16, 1. And by the way, 
we are studying, again, the resurrection. We're studying the fact of the resurrection of our Lord. And just a little behind here on one of my slides, the Bible teaches the bodily resurrection of the Lord. So that really would be our first point. The Bible teaches the bodily resurrection of, our, of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ. And, of course, our first passage, therefore, would be Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1 and following. Our second passage is going to be Mark 16, verse 1. So, the resurrection, the Bible teaches the bodily resurrection of Christ. And we saw that in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1. And now we're in Mark 16. Mark 16. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. They came very early in the morning on the first day of the week. They came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said amongst themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. This is not a small stone, but it's a large, heavy stone. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Verse 6. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place, the place where they laid him. But go tell the disciples, go tell his disciples, and Peter specifically, that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. Verse 8. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now as we go, we'll notice that each one of the accounts is a little bit different. And the reason for the difference in the accounts is the difference in the person who is describing the occasion. Here in Mark, we believe John Mark is writing his account as it was described to him by Peter. Of course, the first, uh, our first passage was in Matthew, written by Matthew. And each one of these accounts will place maybe the angel outside the tomb, as we saw when they first saw him uh, sitting on the stone, but then he's inside when we arrive with Mark. And there are those who say, see, we have a difference here, so it can't be true. Well, it's very possible that the angel has moved inside, and when it's described by Peter to Mark, he's describing a subsequent scene. All of these passages are inspired by God the Holy Spirit. So there appears to be, as we have in other accounts throughout the Gospels, that there is the flexibility of the author in telling the story and what they remembered and what God the Holy Spirit brought to their memory. And really, in so doing, we have a different perspective uh, at various scenes, whether it's here or uh, in other accounts uh, through the Gospels. So it's not as if one is correct and the other one is incorrect. It simply is how that author through the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, remembered it or it was told to him. And now we go to Luke 24. Luke 24. Verse 1. 
Luke 24, verse 1, is another passage supporting the Gospels, clearly teaching the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The tomb was certainly empty. Chapter 24 of Luke, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Verse 5. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And you'll notice we have eleven here to begin with. Now, our last passage is in John 20. John 20, verse 1. John 20, verse 1. We will return to some of these passages for subsequent points. But I want to read these passages before we move any further. John 20, verse 1. John 20, verse 1. And these are all, should be just wonderful passages to us because it tells us that our Lord and Savior who came to uh, fulfill a mission, to fulfill a requirement, He came to provide salvation. But in order to do so, we need to have a risen Savior. And so we see that here our Lord is risen. Verse 1 of John chapter 20. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. You'll notice the we here. So this helps us to understand that while this is written from Mary Magdalene's perspective, and it appears that she's the only one, she acknowledges that there were others with her. So again, when we read these accounts, we can't begin to wring our hands and worry that somehow we have a discrepancy in stories. Because we don't. We simply have to study the passage and realize that it is truly a different perspective by a different author, again, as inspired by God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit allowed the authors to tell their stories using their own words and what they remembered and what they meant to emphasize. We do not know where they have laid him. Verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and we believe that John, um, the apostle in writing this epistle, simply doesn't identify himself, but it is John, the younger disciple. It's always interesting that uh, he, he describes himself as the, the, the one whom Jesus loved, and then also 
we have him running here and he'll outrun Peter. So Peter, uh, years later, probably thought, I'd like to run that race again. But verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Verse 6, Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there. Verse 7, And the handkerchief that had, been, uh, that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also and saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, They didn't understand the scripture here is probably a better way to describe that. They did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Verse 10. Then the disciples went away to their own homes. I'm going to pause just momentarily because we've talked about the tomb. We've talked about the stone. And what I would like to do is look at some pictures. The first picture, to give us a perspective here, is from the Temple Mount. We are, the picture was taken from the Mount of Olives. And just north of that is a place called Mount Scopus, which is uh, simply a ridge, just part of the same ridge of Mount Olives, but it's uh, another uh, high point up the ridge of ways. And this, of course, is the way the Temple Mount looks today. And you'll notice that the city is huge around the temple. It was not that way, in, of course, in Jesus' time. So when it comes time for us now to try to look at the location and understand what happened and try to see the distances, it's a little difficult for us to do so. But here are some pictures of a model. Well, this is not a model. This is a picture on Mount Scopus. And this is a picture of a tomb. And it's a tomb that has had the top of it taken off. So you just have to imagine that you were not able to see into this tomb and that there is a huge stone dome over the top of this. And we are on Mount Scopus. This was our group last year on our tour. And those of you who are going this year will be able to see this, hopefully this same event, same, same location, see the same uh, tomb. And by the way, there are still some open slots here and there. So if any of you are still considering it, uh, please come see me. I'd love to, for you to go with us. We have several from the congregation that are going this year. But this is not the tomb where Jesus was laid, but we believe that this is a very good facsimile of it. Example. So, the stone would have been on this side, and this opening, as we can recall from our passages, would not be large enough for someone just to walk in standing up. They would have to bend down and go in. But, the slab right here 
was where a body would lay. And they would sometimes embalm them the day before they put them in, or they would come back the next day and finish the embalming, depending upon just the individual, uh, that particular event or that particular situation or body. Now, what we and what would happen here, you see these niches, what would happen is the body, after it was uh, laid there and embalmed, it would roll the stone back over the front of the, the entryway here, and they would generally allow the body to lay there for about a year. And after it's decomposed, they would come back, and sometimes they would come, they would roll the stone away, but very often they wouldn't have enough people to do that. What they would do is there was very often another entryway. This one had another entryway. We can't quite see it, but it starts right here, comes back, and there's a very small entryway coming in back here that came in through the back of the tomb, and they would come in, they would gather up the bones and the linen and anything else that they wanted, put it in a small container, an ossuary, and then they would put that in one of these niches. But that's a little extra information, a little extra history, but the stone, of course, was Mary and uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary and, and Salome were coming here to come in and, again, place some more uh, spices on the body. But, when they, but of course, they were not going to be able to do that because the soldiers and chief priests had ensured that the entryway here was sealed. Now, just a few more slides here. Where was this tomb? Well, the tomb, as near as we know, was not that far from the, one of the outer gates of Jerusalem. And the exact location over the years has been occupied by several different markers or monuments or churches. And right now, and most archaeologists agree, and those who are in the conservative camp and otherwise, believe that the location of this tomb is where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is now built. It's very interesting uh, the way that they used to try to preserve these locations is build something over it so that it would not be uh, destroyed either by vandals or some other means, weather. And so the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, we do believe, is there. And we also know in some of the passages that we can read that it doesn't appear that when the Lord was taken down from the cross that he was taken very far, that this tomb uh, was very close to where Christ was crucified. And so, if in fact our, our information is correct, and, and we do believe that it is, we believe that the sepulcher, the uh, tomb, was somewhere in this vicinity, just inside this rather large door into the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, and we believe that the location where Christ was crucified, Golgotha, was somewhere in this vicinity. Now, much of the rock that we believe uh, outcropping that was there has been, uh, has been removed, and it was removed over the years, first of all, by Hadrian, who wanted to obliterate the Christian markers, the Christian locations. 
and not just the Christian ones, but also the Jewish location. So during his reign as emperor, in punishing the Jews for their revolt, he tried to obliterate these places. But one of the other things he did is he erected pagan markers on those locations. Well, that in a way was somewhat of a gift because later on when Constantine's mother, we think it was his mother, came back and removed, she wanted to place markers now to the Christian events and locations. They were marked by all these pagan uh, structures. And so they simply removed many of them and then placed uh, markers or churches over them. And so we think that this is the location. Well, where is this in relationship? Here's another picture of that, the steps going up to an area. And not much of that outcropping is left there. You can't get in this door. You have to go in the other door. This is a model. This is a model of Jerusalem. This is the Temple Mount. And we're standing as if we're looking from, again, the Mount of Olives. And we believe, and there is some dispute, and as I need to continue to study this, maybe I'll get a little bit more confident of, of the location. There are some who believe that Christ could have been tried over here in this location, which, which would have been Pilate's, uh, uh, where he had his office. Or it's very possible that it occurred over in this area, uh, where there are some other structures, including Herod's castle, Herod's home, in this area. But we believe that Christ, in either case, left the city going out this back gate. And the gate is right in this area. And then that Golgotha is in this vicinity, and that the tomb is probably in that very same vicinity. I have a couple other pictures, spending a little longer here than I wanted to, but... Here again is the Temple Mount. We're looking at it now <clears throat> more from the south. I believe that Golgotha is out the back in, a little hard to see it, in this area right here. So came out possibly this gate, and we think that the uh, Golgotha and the tomb are in that vicinity. Okay. Those are just some pictures that I took, and hopefully have more of them this, uh, when we come back this summer. Our second point, <clears throat> the post-resurrection appearances of our Lord. We're not going to be able to look at some of, these pic some of these passages. We'll move right through them. We've already read some of the passages, <clears throat> but... There were many post-resurrection appearances of our Lord. We've seen some of them, certainly to Mary, Mary Magdalene. We've seen that in, in uh, Matthew 28. We've seen the appearance in Matthew, or excuse me, in Mark 16:9, and then we also saw it. Well, let me just go to one of those passages. We have, he hasn't. We haven't seen him yet, have we? They just saw that he was gone. Your Bible should still be open to John 20. So in John 20, he's going to appear to Mary. So there were many post-resurrection appearances of our Lord. Again, we're proving the fact of our Lord's resurrection. And in John 20, verse 14, let's just begin in verse 11. 
But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting on sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had, had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Verse 14. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And then she recognized him. We would also the, see a similar <clears throat> passage in Mark 16.9. Mark 16.9. We see that he appeared to other women returning from the tomb. And we would see that in Matthew 28, 9. So the first person to whom he appears, Mary, we also see that he appears in his, in, after his resurrection to other women returning from the tomb, and that would be in Matthew 28, 9. Matthew 28, 9. Matthew 28.9. Matthew 28.9 says, And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, and again, these are the women <clears throat> that we saw in Matthew 28.1. Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by his feet and worshipped him. Verse 10. <clears throat> then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren <clears throat> to go to Galilee, and there they shall see me. So he's appeared to the other women. He also appears to Peter, and we're not going to go to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8 yet. We'll do that in a minute, so let's just hold our place here. He appears to Peter, and we see that in 1 Corinthians 15, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. He's going to appear to the disciples on the Emmaus Road. He's going to appear to the disciples on the Emmaus Road. Now let's go to, to Mark 16:12. See, we're going to pick up these passages. We're just not going to go them immediately. Mark 16:12. So he's appeared to Mary. He's appeared to other women returning from the tomb. He's appeared to Peter. And now he's going to appear to the disciples on the Emmaus Road. Mark 16:12. Back to Mark 16. Mark 16, <clears throat> verse 12. And after that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. This is passage that we rarely go to, but I wanted to do that. We could also see this in Luke 24:13. Luke 24:13 He's going to appear to the disciples without Thomas. He's going to appear to the disciples without Thomas. <clears throat> Luke 24:13 
get the best passage for that. Well, we are still in Mark, so let's just look at Mark 16:14. It says, "Later he appeared to the eleven, the eleven, as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Now he's going to appear to the disciples with Thomas, and we'll go back to John 20:26. 20, So he appears to the disciples without Thomas, and he appears to the disciples with Thomas. Now John 20, 26. John 20, 26. In 24, we see that he was not there as well. So in in John 20, 24, it says, Now Thomas, called the twin... One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. But when we get to 26, it says, And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, and the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. And of course, this is when Thomas gets the opportunity to touch the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see without Thomas and with Thomas, then we're going to see that he appeared to seven of the disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and we're here in John. So let's go over to John 21, 1 through 2. John 21, 1 through 2. And it says, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he, uh, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were going together. And so the Lord will now appear to them. Uh, verse, verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. Verse 4. But then when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know, did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? And so the Lord is now appearing to them here. And then finally, he appears to James, to over 5,000, excuse me, 500 at one time, and to Paul. And that's in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. So finally, he's going to appear to James, to over 500 at one time, and to Paul. And that's in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. We'll begin in verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, this would be Peter, then by the twelve, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, 
of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Seven, they've died. Verse 7, after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me, also as one born out of due time. And so we see that there are many witnesses to the Lord's resurrection. So we have the facts of his resurrection. First of all, the word of God teaches his bodily resurrection. We have many post-resurrection appearances. And then we have some historical evidences of our Lord's resurrection. The historical evidences. First of all, we see that no body was ever found. And let me say it was not for want of trying, I'm sure. No body was ever found. We see that Jesus had stated, as we look at this point, that Jesus had stated that he would be killed and be raised again the third day. And he said that in Mark 8.31. Keep your finger here. Well, don't keep your finger here. We're going to be running back and forth here. But in Mark 8.21, 8.31 I said, Mark 8.31, we see that the Lord began to teach that he would be killed and raised again the third day. So Christ had stated that he would be killed and raised again the third day. And this is in Mark 8.31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He began to teach this. He didn't teach it just once, but he said it over and over and over again said it many times. So, if there had been a body after the crucifixion, the Jews and the Romans would have produced it as an exhibit to refute the claims of the resurrection, but they did not. He said that he would be raised again. And had there been a body, they would have found it and they would have produced it because the Lord had said, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be raised again on the third day. Secondly, precautions had been taken by the chief priests. So, be here, the worst fears of the high priests, the worst fears of the chief priests and the Pharisees was an empty tomb. Let's look at Matthew 27:62. Matthew 27:62. So the worst fears of the chief priests and the Pharisees was an empty tomb, and they took all precautions to prevent such an occurrence, but they were unsuccessful. Matthew 27:62. This is after Christ was buried, after the crucifixion, after he was buried. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together. This is actually on the, um, the Passover, which is the day after the day of preparation. The chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember, while he was still alive, how that deceiver, they call him the deceiver, said, After three days I will rise. Verse 64. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure 
First time we see the word secure. Until the third day, lest the disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Verse 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard? By the way, the word guard here is a Latin loan word. So we know that this is more than likely a Roman guard. This is not just uh, a Jewish guard. It's a Roman loan word. You have a guard, go your way, make it secure as you know how. Verse 66, so they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So their worst fears was that the Lord would rise again. And so they took precautions to ensure that there would be an empty tomb. Before the news spread, responses began to be prepared. We had responses being prepared. We'll turn one page and look at Matthew 28. So before the news of the empty tomb had spread, the chief priests and the Roman guards were already addressing the fact of the empty tomb. So they were already coming up with responses. Verse 20, or chapter 28, verse 11, Matthew 28. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. They were no longer dead. Verse 12. When they had assembled with the elders and, and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. Verse 15. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. But that the disciples stole the body. So, again, if there had been a body still in the tomb, we wouldn't be spreading these stories. A tomb with a body, again, was never produced. A tomb with a body was never produced. And I say this because very often we would see that the disciples were accused of, well, maybe they went to the wrong tomb. So, well... Uh, They could have been confused. You know, it was a very traumatic time for them. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Or the other side of the story is maybe they were telling a lie about the empty tomb. Well, a tomb with a body was never produced. Had that been the case, then the Pharisees surely would have said, no, here's the tomb, the body's inside. No tomb, no correct tomb with a body inside that was ever located. Pilate never arrested anyone for grave robbing. So, Pilate certainly heard this, but Pilate arrested no one. Certainly, someone would have been arrested. We have a Roman guard guarding the tomb. So that the claim that the disciples stole the body was such a clear fabrication that neither Pilate nor anyone else arrested anyone for the crime of grave robbing. It was a clear fabrication. It was obvious that it wasn't true. Pilate doesn't act on it. Pilate knew he shouldn't have sent him to be crucified. His wife even warned him not to do it. Pilate knows that there was no grave robbing. No Roman guards were punished. To fall asleep on your post would have been punishable by execution. The the, the event was deemed extra-natural. That's 
simply how it was deemed, how it was seen. Because had the Roman guards been suspected of sleeping, misconduct, high misconduct, they would have been executed, but they were not. <clears throat> Gee, there's no witnesses to the stone being removed. So how did the stone become removed? Were the disciples removing the stone? I mean, that was the accusation. The huge stone rolled over the opening of the grave and sealed would have been a rather noisy affair to remove, and no one heard this. The guards didn't hear the stone being removed. They're standing out there. They're not awakened. We do have an earthquake, and the stone moved, but there's no other witnesses to this. <clears throat> H, no witnesses observed a body being removed. You'll notice that the guards come in and say, we'll have to come up with a story because he's not there. There are no witnesses. There's no witnesses to a body being removed. The guards could not <clears throat> be called as witnesses because we wanted, if they had been asleep, sleeping witnesses cannot give testimony against actions that they didn't see nor make charges that they saw grave robbing. So we have no witnesses. There's no witnesses of the body being removed. That may be a story, but there's no witnesses. The swoon theory debunked. You, we've all heard, or you should have heard, that there's a, a theory out there that <clears throat> the Lord... Well, there's another story that Judas supposedly... This is the Islamic story, is that Judas was crucified instead of the Lord. Well, if that's the case, then how did he go out and hang himself afterwards? A little bit difficult. But the swoon theory <clears throat> is that Jesus went to the cross, survived the cross, was taken down, placed in the tomb, and the coolness of the tomb revived him, and he departed. <clears throat> well, first of all, the Roman soldiers certified his death to Pilate. And we see that in Mark 15, 43. So the swoon theory being debunked is just not credible. The Roman soldiers certified his death to Pilate. Mark 15, 43. Mark 15, 43. Actually, 44. Mark 15, 44. I'll start in verse 42. It's so much easier. Mark 15, 42. Now, when evening had come, because it was a preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, Pilate is not going to turn over this body without some coroner's report. So, 44, Pilate marveled that he was already dead. Because, you see, crucifixion was designed for torture. And so, for him to be dead already, this was unusual. Verse 44, 
Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning, summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had he asked him if he had been dead for some time. Forty five. So when so when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. So here we see that the Roman soldiers provide a testimony that he's dead. And Roman soldiers pretty good at identifying dead bodies. They're not going to miss this one. We also know that if Christ had been alive on the cross, when the sword punctured his side, we would not have seen, as the Bible says, blood and water or blood and serum pointing forth. We simply would have had blood. And had he still been alive, when his side is punctured by the sword, we would have seen a pulsing blood coming out. But that's not the case. The Lord is dead. There's no subsequent bleeding after the sword puncture. Our Lord is dead. So the Lord did not survive the cross, go to the tomb, and then somehow be revived. J, the disciples believed and died with their convictions. If this was a false story, there's no reason for his disciples who were scared to death after the, resur- after the crucifixion, they wouldn't have come up with a story and been able to stick to it. So the, sti- the disciples went to their deaths, believing in and claiming that Jesus arose. And then finally, <clears throat> resurrection. Resurrection is simply the best explanation for the empty tomb. Resurrection is simply the best explanation for the empty tomb. Our Lord died on the cross, was buried, and he rose again the third day, simply as the Bible says. So this is our historical proof as well. Now there's one other thing I wanted to address this morning, and it was in John chapter 20. When we come back, at the beginning of the next service, I will address that because there is, there's been an email that's gone around about the napkin that supposedly was on the head of our Lord. And we read it in, we read about it in uh, John 20, I believe. When we come back at the beginning of the next service, I'll cover that. But at the beginning of the next service, we'll begin a study of the significance of the resurrection, the significance of the resurrection. Let's bow our heads in prayer. We're going to close the service, but then I'm also going to ask Specialist Pete Todson if he'd come uh, right after the prayer and give him the opportunity to say a few words. He says, as a soldier, he'll do it. <laughs> Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for the opportunity we have to search the Scriptures, to find the truth of the resurrection. We're thankful, Father, that the tomb is empty. We're thankful that he is risen. And we're thankful, Father, that our Lord Jesus Christ is, city, sitted, is, seating, is sitting, seated beside you at your right hand. And as we pray and as we live our lives, he makes intercession for us. He is not in the tomb. He is risen. And we're thankful for these facts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.